there's an art form that some of this is just experience. Some of it is just pure talent. When I first started off in sales, I had a sales manager, the greatest sales leader I've ever worked for, and an incredible strategist. Like this dude got enterprise level complex sales at a level that I've never seen anybody else understand. He just got it. And it was like a Wayne Gretzky kind of thing. Like everything in a deal slowed down in front of him. But the very first day I worked for him, he got on a whiteboard and he drew this image that looked like a set of stairs. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Jeb Blunt. He's the founder of Sales Gravy and author of numerous best-selling books, including Fanatical Prospecting, which just happened to be the winner of Ring DNA's Sales Madness Bracket Challenge for the most influential sales book. And Jeb's joining me today on Sales Enablement, episode 789, to talk about, well, pretty much everything about sales. I'd read Jeb's latest book, The Ultimate Guide to Mastering Objections, The Art and Science of Getting Past No, and and had a ton of questions prepared to ask him about that, and it ended up we just didn't talk about his book at all. But no worries, because he's been back on the show in a few months to talk about that. But in the meantime, just sit back and enjoy this wide-ranging talk about sales. I had a blast, as always, talking with Jeb, and you'll enjoy it too. Now, before we get to Jeb, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. And if you haven't already connected with me on LinkedIn, you can find me. It's the usual linkedin.com slash in slash real Andy Paul. All right, let's jump into it. Jeb, welcome to the show, or welcome back to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. I'm, I'm really glad to be back. <laughs> I'm, uh, I've, I've been waiting for this for a long time. You had me on a couple of times, and like your show's so hot that uh, if you can get on here, you're, uh, you're a rock star. <laughs> what? I think you're you're near the top of the class. I think this could be up number five, maybe appearance. It's something like something that. like that. Yeah, yeah. So you're in elite company as you should be. So um, where are you weathering the storm? Well, we're at the Sales Gravy headquarters in uh, in Thompson, Georgia, which is near Augusta, Georgia, and we are uh, we're very fortunate that we're we have you know, good, good offices to go to. So we haven't had to, to lock ourselves down in our houses too much. Oh, that's good. I mean, is your complex right there at your house or? Uh, it's down the road. It's, uh, yeah. we're, we're about two miles down the road from our house. So we've, uh, we sent most of our administrative group home and a couple of our salespeople are working from home, but our production crew and that are running our studios because we run so much virtual uh, virtual training out of here. Our production crew comes in every single day. And then uh, Carrie, who is my wife and our CFO, uh, is in every single day. And then uh, and then I come in when, when I can. And frankly, this has been the longest stretch. I was calculating a day that I've been home without traveling since 1994. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was calculating that as well. And I think for me, it was... Um... 1985. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, there's this rhythm. I was talking about this with another guest recently. It's, there's just this, you feel it in your body, right? It's like, it's not that I'm in love with the travel, the business travel and so on, but it's just, it's just something I've always done. And yeah, it just, <laughs> it's, it's hard. It is. Although I did 311 nights last year on the road. Yeah, you're the Iron Man, and that's yeah. <laughs> and I've done that. I've been 300 nights plus for 
four years in a row. So prior to that, you know, we were in the 250 day range. And by the time we hit March, and this is, you know, the, the, the good side and bad side of something so horrific happening. But by the time we hit March, I, I, I mean, I'd been on the road pretty much every single day since January 1st. And I was, you know, I was just burnt already. Yeah. And so the slowdown for me was, uh, in a lot of ways, was just a, it was an opportunity to just catch my breath. And it's and a lot of it's just been because business has just been so good and the economy's been so hot. It's been hard not to take every piece of business that came, you know, comes mm-hmm. our way. Sure. Because as they say, when it's, you know, when it's sunshine and you need to make hay and make hay. Uh, so we were doing that. So I think that the, I think it's, it's been, it's been a, it's been an interesting process. Now, the last 60 days, I've written a 80,000 word book that will be out June 15th called Virtual Selling. And that dominated my life. So I had this little brief period for about three weeks where I was like, man, I'm off the road. I can think, I can work, I can do these things. And then one morning in the shower, I had this grandiose idea to write this brand new book and then off to the races. And you've, you know, you're an author as well. So you can imagine it usually takes me 12 to 18 months to write a book and compressing that into 60 days. Uh, That's and the impressive. Book, the book got turned in on Monday. It's, it's, oh, it's insanity. So it felt like I was traveling at the time because I just had to turn the whole world off around me. Well, how'd you do that? Because, you know, obviously you're still do, you know, delivering training and other things. So where'd you find the time to write 80,000 words, which is a long book? It's uh, it's it's barely staying married, <laughs> um, but it's it's just working. It's working from you know I got up at four o'clock this morning. I you know we're we're in the editing stage right now, so the book got turned in on Monday, and you you filled in the spaces, and then if you can get you know long periods of time, what you have to do is you have to absolutely completely become myopic and focus on the book, which is mm-hmm. that's where your that's where you know your relationships get a little bit tense. I mean, I could tell towards the end, I'm starting to get you know the these, uh, these, you know, death looks from, from <laughs> Carrie, because, you know, she's talking to me and I'm, I'm like, I'm barely paying attention. So it's, uh, it, there's, there's a process to it. Be obviously proving that you can do it and the, and then maybe even thinking, and I think this is important for salespeople as well, as you start thinking about selling in, in a new world order, that it, took me so long to write books before simply because I was traveling all the time. Mm-hmm. And even though I wrote a lot on airplanes, it's hard to get a rhythm Not when same, you can't right. string hours together yep. at the same time. But if if you aren't doing all of that travel, suddenly there's time that, that gets freed up. And in that space, you can do amazing things. And one of the things, Andy, that I've been working with our clients on and with their salespeople really all over the globe. Right now, we're teaching classes in Japan, in Beijing, in Singapore, in India, uh, in Australia, South Africa, uh, of course, in the United States. We're, so we're, we're able to touch people all over the place because we have the ability through our virtual studios to touch them. Where at, before that we have to get on an airplane and fly 24 hours to go see somebody, that the same thing happens to you. If you have to drive across town to run an, an initial meeting, mm-hmm. then then that takes time. But if you could do the initial meeting over video, now you may have to go in person to do discovery because you sell a piece of equipment or you sell something that requires you to go in and get hands on with a problem. Yeah, see, actually see what's going on there, right? Right, but if you if you put your effort and you put the time investment in discovery, where most of the sales process mm-hmm. should be in complex deals, I agree. Then on either side of that, your initial call, which is really a qualifying, you know, getting enough interest to move forward call, and your 
in your presentation, those could be moved into virtual. And if you're doing discovery with a bunch of different stakeholders, maybe they're spread out, then some of your discovery can be in person and some of your discovery can be virtual. You take all the travel time out and suddenly you can see, you can have more prospects in your pipeline. You can have more time to, you know, to build more proposals and, 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 and do more, be more productive. And by the way, shorten the sales cycle. So I think that I think that there's going to be a blend. And by the way, even people, even account executives we work with with the, some of the SaaS companies that we deal with, mm-hmm. a lot of the the account executives never show their face on on camera. But what if we could get them to do more virtual calls and get off the phone? They can probably un- improve their closing rate. So they're blending in a virtual mm-hmm. call, you know, a video call into their normal process. So I think that. The, the lesson that I've learned is I can get a lot done if I'm not getting on airplanes and in cars and in Ubers and in hotels. And I think the same thing is going to happen for salespeople when they figure out that in this new world order, people are going to be more, not even, I don't say open to, but more used to communicating on on a, on a wide array of channels. And if salespeople can blend those channels appropriately for the customer, the opportunity, the sales cycle, and the product that salespeople are going to find that it's easier to sell and they can be more productive and they can make more money. I agree. And I think you used the right word, which is blend, right? I think that's often people that were traveling were traveling indiscriminately because they felt like they needed to be out of the office. And yeah, my experience for years selling very complex, expensive equipment overseas is you had to use it judiciously. Mm -hmm. To your point, I wanted to be there for discovery for sure. But I could do most everything else remotely. And then I'd show up for the close or you know, contract negotiation or whatever. But yeah, I could close multi-million dollar deals with only seeing the customer two or three times. Absolutely. Absolutely. And part of it was a monetary pressure because we had the constraint because <laughs> I was working for startups. We couldn't afford the travel. So when you have those constraints, oftentimes they force you to be better at what you're doing. That's exactly right. Well, I, in, in the new book I talk about when I started Sales Gravy 13 years ago, I left a big Fortune 500 company where I was a senior level executive and I had, you know, all the trappings of being a senior, you know, a senior level executive corner office, couple of assistants, you know, r- riding around on a private jet. And suddenly I'm building a business from scratch using my own bootstrap money. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do that either. I, there's no way I could go on on physical sales calls. But my entire life had been in-person selling. So I was forced, like you said, in a, in a startup situation to figure out a way to sell big deals. Now, that didn't mean that I didn't go to some in-person calls because the two biggest enterprise deals I sold at the beginning of the starting my company that put my company on the map. In both of those cases, I went to the closing meetings with the executives. I got on the airplane, but I had to I, I had to make that bet very carefully because when you're starting up, I mean, even spending $500 on a plane ticket, if it doesn't work mm-hmm. out like that, you're not getting that money back. So. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that's the point I was making is that, and I see it, I see it a lot of times with companies that have really embraced inside sales is that they forget the magic of actually showing up in person at the yes. right time. And the, the, they think, well, I'll just do it all remotely. And I remember talking to a group of enterprise sellers, and I said, well, you know, who's got average contract value over a quarter million dollars? And a number of people raised their hand. I said, well, how many of you actually go visit your customer during the sales process? And almost none of them did. Yep. And Maya said, hmm, well, if I were competing against you, I'd go win all those deals because I'd go visit the customer. And, and that's what... When we look at, like, there was a big move, if we go back, you know, go back 
2010, 2008, mm-hmm. 9, 10, coming out of the Great Recession. I mean, we were we, there was already a blend of inside and outside. And we think this is new, but you know, back in 1993, when I was carrying a briefcase, mm-hmm. you know, on the street, I had an inside salesperson in California who set appointments for me. So it wasn't this isn't some no. brilliant new thing that we've done. Repackaging, yes. Exactly. So but if you if you go back, what happened was there was this pendulum swing to inside. So, you know, my my practice, we started working with inside sales mm-hmm. teams. And I can't tell you how many companies went all inside and then realized what a strategic mistake that was because they lost contact with their customers. Right. And the really forward-looking ones did exactly what you said. They were they were judicious about where they were going to spend their time. And especially with their larger customers, they made sure that even though a person might work, an account executive or an account manager might work inside most of the time, that there were there were customer visitation there were there were contact with those folks and in really big deals that needed to get closed you would you would go you would go see them so i think that it's that's why i go back to blending i think blending is the name of the game and mm-hmm. i think even even pure inside sales groups so when we're working with inside sales teams especially with account executives and we've been doing this for a long time it's like show your face on camera when you're doing a demo just let them see you. Like when you start sure. the call, start with you on the camera. Stop hiding behind it because you're a real human being and they need to see you. And and account executives are scared of that. So they hide behind the phone. Well, why? Why are they why are they afraid of that though? People are afraid of the camera. I mean, people are afraid of the camera. I mean, when you <laughs> and one of the steals things is, their soul. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is some there is some good data behind this and and the way that the sure. human brain works. But if you think about it, a, most people spend 30 to 70% of the time on a video call looking at themselves. Mm-hmm. And what they see in the camera makes them disgusted because you look like crap in a camera, a webcam. You just don't look good in a webcam, especially when you're looking at yourself. I mean, but but imagine this, that you you're, you go out to one of your big enterprise customers, Andy, and you're going on a sales call and that you put a mirror on your customer's desk during the discovery call and you spend the entire time looking at yourself <laughs> in the mirror while you're asking them questions. You would feel the same way. you pick out everything that was wrong with yourself and they would probably kick you out of the office at some point. They would would stop talking and wait for you to look up. (laughs) So that's a, it's just a natural thing for human beings to do. So I, there's a, it's understandable why that happens. And look, you know, I'm, you know, even on this podcast, I ask you, is this a video call? Because I'm conscientious of, I want to be in the best light and the, in the right camera on the right set, uh, because that matters. And I, and I think for account executives, it's the same thing, but it's also helping them understand the consequences of not showing your face. If you show your face and there's beautiful data on this right now, Gong.io did a, a really nice uh, survey on this. They looked at a hundred thousand customer interactions purely inside. So this was account executives mm-hmm. talking to customers and the account executives who w- were, you know, were, were showed their face on a webcam had a 44% higher close rate than those that did not. Th- those are, th- that's, that's not nothing to laugh at. And Salesloft no. did, an, did another study with their group on, you know, on virtual calls. that is 75% close rate when they showed their face on camera. Mm-hmm. And, and, and their conclusion on that was, this isn't a joke. This is a, this is, this means something. So, for everybody that's in sales, no matter what your role is or where you fit, what we're discovering is that blending matters. And it wasn't that we're discovering it suddenly. We've known this for a long time. You knew this for a long time. I've known this for a long time. It's just that suddenly there's a spotlight on it and and we're recognizing that it can work and that 
like, you know, I, maybe another way of saying it is that I, I thought the only way to write a book was the way I wrote books until I wrote this last book. Mm-hmm. And then exactly. I realized, you know what, I can, I can, I could pump out three, four books a year if I did it like this. So we've always thought that the only way to sell would be this, or the only way to do training would be this. And turns out that it isn't the only way and human beings, because we're, you know, we, we, you know, I guess, what do you call it? Was it in, in, the invention is the, our, the necessity is the mother of invention, invention, right? Like we, we figure it out and it's a good well, thing. I think the thing that's interesting on the video part though, too, is, is more than ever, you know, there's this need to sort of demonstrate your humanity in sales. And I think this idea of, you know, people become so accustomed. If we're going to use zoom, I want to see you. Right. If we're going to yes. use Zoom to do a demo, uh, or go to meeting or whatever, we just see people these days, and so it's like, well, if, if you're not letting me see you, why is that? That's exactly right. Because there's been newer research, and you know, with the whole Zoom boom, that that uh, psychologist saying, look, it's it's actually not as an effective communication medium as just listening to someone, which may be the case. Right, that you miss some nuances because the the quality of the signal and and so on. You don't get the nuance of the body language. Fine, but people still want to see you, right? This is a human business, and and I think trying to hide something, people their walls go up and say, well, why? What are you hiding? Well, I was if we if we took a look at the psychologist and said, you know, from a listening standpoint, video is harder. Then then look at it from this side. If you're the salesperson. And you're you're engaging a prospect on video. It is much harder for you to listen and pay attention. Mm-hmm. You have to train your brain to use peripheral vision, for instance, to pick up body language and tone of voice. And it's hard concentrating on the camera because you need to be making eye contact into the camera. Right. right. However, you're there to sell people. You're there to influence people. And if you want to influence other people, there's something called encoding. You need to be able to, to show them body language. You want to create as great of a close effect simile to in-person communication as you can. Mm-hmm. Because there's no human being on earth except for a moron who would tell you that, that you know, in person, us talking to each other is the worst type of communication. It is the absolute best type of communication. <laughs> it's just not the most efficient communication. And sometimes it can be dangerous in a pandemic. However, if you can get as close as you possibly can to that, then you can win. So as a salesperson, I think the the psychologists are absolutely right. It's much harder to listen and really take in the whole message, deep listening on a video call, but it doesn't matter because if, if if the people on the other side of the call can see your face, and they can see your body language. And we teach people to make sure that their torso up and you can see your mm-hmm. hands. They can see your face, see your body language. They can hear your tone of voice. They can, you know, they can, they can respond to your pace and they can see that there's congruence between the words that you use and your, and your body language and your voice. They're going to trust you. When people trust you, they have a tendency to buy from you. So for the salesperson, being on screen is the best thing you can do. And by the way, I get on a lot of calls where stakeholders are all, they have just their name up, you know, on the, on the, the, the black mm-hmm. screen of death mm-hmm. on, you know, on Zoom. I don't care. I stand there in my suit and I deliver like they're all looking at me because I have to assume that they can all see me. Yep. And, and, and the very next time I do it, everybody gets on video. But I think that that's, I think that it's that important. And, you know, when we start thinking about negotiation, for example, 
you know, the one of the things in the in in Inc. we talk about is you know is being selected as the vendor of choice. Mm-hmm. This is a big piece of that, right? So if sure. they see you and they trust you and they know you, and as you take them through the process, they see you even more and they become familiar with your face and it means something to them. We know that in sales, the most consistent predictor of outcome is the emotional experience that people have with you, all things being equal. Mm-hmm. And if, if that is the case, then you create a greater emotional experience and there's more motivation to do business with you, then you're going to be in a much better position from a negotiating standpoint than you are if you were a faceless human being with just a voice. Well, but you also make the point in the book, and which is one that I brought out in one of my books too, is that... Yeah, if you can see somebody, you can then actually use your intuition and your instinct to say, yeah, we are the vendor of choice. So you call it the implicit yes. vendor of choice, right? Is, is that's If you have any experience at all, I mean, in my career, I knew the moment that happened, right? And I mm-hmm. developed the instincts and the experience. It could be six months before I won a deal, but I knew at that point I was the vendor of choice. And oftentimes, you could want to reinforce that being in person. And, and I think there's... I don't call it a generational issue, but you know, a lot of people have grown up in sort of the inside sales environment. This is a big challenge for them to understand that you actually can do a better job if you can actually see someone. And I think this could lead, I hope, because I'm seeing some companies sort of tiptoe in this direction is start using more judicious use of actually going and meeting people once we get back yes. to normal. And so you have that blend sort of coming out because they're seeing through video that, oh, if I do this well, just think how much better it'd be in person. Yes. That's exactly right. And so if you're a leader right now, what you should be doing is mapping your sales process. And this is this is going to shift based on the size of the customer, based on the geography, right. all of those things. There's no black or white here, but no. I would be mapping the sales process and I would be looking at it and trying to figure out where I can put in video versus in person. And if I'm inside, where do I need to go outside versus in person that's going to give me a, a, a bin-win probability in my favor in that particular situation? You, you want to start doing that. And the idea here is the same reason why there was such a move into inside sales was if we took a group of, of say, SaaS sales representatives and we put them out geographically, let's say, you know, you have an office in Chicago, an office in Tampa, an office in Atlanta, and those SaaS salespeople went out and met with clients face-to-face and did demos face-to-face, the close ratios would be much higher than they are on inside sales because yes, the human absolutely. to human would, would move it. The right. problem is, is that you just, it limits the number of people that you can, that you can close. And when you have a SaaS program that can, you know, that, 16 million businesses can use, um, that's a, that's a, a long way, you know, a long, a very expensive and, a, a, you know, a, a really long time to ramp up and you need to ramp up growth fast. So if you're inside, you can get a lot more velocities because you can talk to a lot more people, even though your close ratios are going to be lower. And when you look at the trade-off, it makes sense to do that. And if you just look at blending and your whole sales force, what you want to do is you want to blend the, 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 the right communication channel, whether it's in person or a virtual channel, which would be phone or email or text or video or whatever, in the right way so that you have the highest probability of closing more deals faster at the lowest cost. Mm-hmm. And all of that comes in. It's a, it's, a, it's a complete algorithm. It's not just one thing. Can I, can I close you know, can I close business and do it as cheap as I possibly can? Well, you you can do that, but you're not going to close a lot of business. So it's the, it's the, it's all of those things together. And, and in the middle of that, what gives you the highest probability and which is, which is why I'm a student of probability, not methodology. I, Mm -hmm. the methodology to me is, um, 
is is needs to match the moment. So I'm not an evangelist. I love all the people that I'm an evangelist for this. I'm not an evangelist for anything other than talking with people and having conversations and probability because nothing's, nothing is right. Nothing is wrong. Everything in sales works. Uh, and, and, and you can, you could say I could sell, you know, I can sell seven figure deals all day long on the phone. Sure. You can, you know, but you can also say I can sell sell seven days, seven you know figure deals all day long in person. Sure, you can. The question is what what methodology or what blend of methodologies or communication channels is going to in- increase the probability that when you engage customers that you win those deals at the at a at a cost level that 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 you know lets you drop it to the bottom line. So. Right. But the thing is, you're you're talking about being deliberate, though, and this is this is a part where I think many sales organizations miss these days. Is yeah, they want to scale the pipeline, but they're doing it in such a way they're basically just playing the odds. Yes, and as I believe, I don't want to speak for you, but I mean, from my perspective, it's like, well, no, I want to shape the odds in my favor, right? As I want to be exactly right. And so, yeah, I'm a big fan of probability too. I know always know what my numbers are, but I always figure there's a way to make my numbers better those ratios better. And so I just not going to say, look, yeah, I'm gonna put all this crap on the top of the funnel. And I know if I do that, I'll get a certain percentage out of it, which is the way most, not most, Mm -hmm. but a good, good share of the SaaS companies operate as opposed to saying, well, how do I take that 20% win ratio and make it 25%? Well, you know, one of the things you said earlier that we skipped over, but I think it's important because it's, it's, there's an art form that, that some of this is just experience. Some of it is Mm -hmm. just pure talent. When I first started off in sales, I had a sales manager, the greatest sales leader I've ever worked for, a guy named Bob Blackwell, amazing, and and an incredible strategist. Like, this dude got enterprise-level complex sales at a level that I've never seen anybody else understand. He just got it. And it was like a Wayne Gretzky kind of thing. Like Mm -hmm. He he just could see everything in a deal slowed down in, in front of him. But the but the very first day I worked for him, he got on a whiteboard and he drew this this image that looked like a set of stairs. So it started at the bottom and it went to the top. And he said, this is where you start in a sale in a large deal. And this is where you end. And he drew a dollar sign. He said, someplace in the middle, you close the deal. You all don't all, you don't always know, but you close it here. It's not closed there and it's not closed here. So if you want to win the deal, start at the end and work your way backwards and pick the steps that you're going to have to go through with this particular prospect based on what you know about them and build your process that way, step by step by step by step. Yep. Yep. And when you said like I, you would be in a deal and you, you just knew when you had it, like that's a level of instinct that I'm not sure that, that it's something that we can even like give people. I don't think you can write a book about it. I think that there's... There are just some people who get it. And I also think that experience, like there's a mm-hmm. period of time when you start picking up on patterns, like you can see the patterns in your head and you don't even know it. It's just happening at the subconscious level and you start putting those together. And then you say, this is the deal that I'm going to win. And then what you do, and this is where, you know, where, you know, where Andy, where you are like, you know, like in the top 2%, because I, 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 and I may be wrong about this, but what, then what you do is it's like you get myopically focused on those deals in your pipeline that your subconscious tells you, your brain tells you, all the evidence tells you this deal is going to close mm-hmm. and all the other stuff you don't spend any time with. And, you know, if, if one of those lottery tickets comes through, that's good, but you then move that way. So what happens is a lot of the deals in your pipeline that are never going to close, they just automatically fall to the wayside. And then you just, and you start refilling the, the funnel with, with new opportunities. 
but it's sort of a natural progression because of the way that you focus. Whereas a salesperson who is, doesn't have that much experience or isn't able to, to pull out those different patterns. And by the way, this, I think some of this is part of negotiation too, is when you, when you don't see those patterns, what happens is you start treating every single deal or opportunity in your pipeline. Like it's exactly the same. Exactly, so you put the right. same amount of effort on those, on those issues. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that I think experience sort of teaches you is, to your point, is, yeah, you recognize patterns, but you also understand the context, which is, this is a unique situation, right? This is this person's not the same as the other person. Things are sort of happening the same. So, yeah, I can, I can just follow this pattern, which I think is what too many salespeople do, as opposed to saying, is this going to go the same way to the next step as it did before? And, and be deliberate about analyzing that. So I know that you work with a lot of sales leaders and that's that's your one of the things that you're that you're a master at is helping leaders help their salespeople. The way that I learned how to do this was because I had this great mentor, Bob Blackwell, and then I had other leaders after that. So mm-hmm. I it wasn't I, you know, when I got experience, the way that I describe it is you compress experience. You can compress experience if you have a good leader and a good coach mm-hmm. and someone who can see those clues and is asking you questions and making you find those things. So um, what what Bob would do is we would put us in these murder board sessions where we would take our <laughs> deals and we would have to kill the deal. Like he would, right. you had, you'd have to find all of the things that would kill your deal and then solve for those issues. Yep. And And most of those things never transpired. But it was through that process that you began to become aware of the of the of the patterns. So someone was teaching me the patterns. It wasn't that I was learning them. And I think that's also an issue that we face, especially in inside sales, that I've seen is that you've got, you know, you've got a lot of really young managers that are sitting on these big open office floors, by the way, that are all going to go away. There's mm-hmm. the open office concept is dead. A lot of plexiglass coming into the office near yep. you. Which is going to be the best damn thing that ever happened to yep. inside salespeople because yep. they're not going to be distracted by the person next to them. Yep. But these, but these leaders, they're they've got they've got spans of control that are way too wide, and they're they didn't go through some of the crucibles that a lot of you know a lot of leaders have had to go through to to, to move into those jobs. And I don't know that they always understand strategy. I think what they've what they've what they've learned is look at a dashboard, like mm-hmm. you said. Put this much into the pipe. If the pipe is this big, this much is going to come out of it. Oh, by the way, they misforecast every single freaking month, every mm-hmm. month, mm-hmm. because that's not how you build a forecast. Because that doesn't—that's not a forecast. That's a—that's just a pipe dream. But they do those things, and so I'm not—I'm not casting aspersions on leaders, but I am saying that great salespeople almost always come from great leaders. They have a great coach or, or a great mentor, and yep. then, by the way, not always the nicest people. Like. Bob, man, he would put his foot up your rear end so fast and he would hurt your feelings so fast, but you learn from him. And all of the great sales leaders that I had were that way. Like they were challenging you all the time oh, on yeah. what you thought was true. And I think that, that we're totally off, su- off the subject now, well, but no, I think that there needs great. to be an awakening in sales leadership, understanding the role that you play and how important you are, not only to making your salespeople better, but to their livelihoods, their careers, and their families. And understanding that if you understand that role that you play, get deeper into the deals that they're running, get side by side with them, understand what they're working on, ask really hard questions, put them on the spot, let them fail from time to time, let them let them lose a deal that they told you they were going to win and you knew they were going to lose it so they can learn from it and then come back and help them learn from it versus you know just being so data driven and you know and velocity driven that you mm-hmm. never take time to to develop the people that are going to have your job tomorrow. 
Well, so let me ask you this question because you know, you're one of the most prominent sales trainers around, and and yeah, I'm wondering whether what impact sales training really has in a relative sense is you know we spend these billions of dollars a year, twenty billion dollars I think in the U.S. in sales training, and it's not really clear it's moving the needle. You know, we look at the broad broad picture of sellers is like, but to your point precisely is. Yeah, the impact comes from the bosses. And we're in this performance-based profession. And the managers, the bosses, the coaches don't know how to coach performance. So what if we sort of flipped that expenditure on its head and said, well, let's let's go spend the bulk of that $20 billion on training the managers, the coaches, how to do their job, to be these people that that teach and inspire closely the sellers. I think that we've been, I mean, we've been talking about this for 30 years. I mean, this is not, this is not a new conversation. And, no. you know, there's not a, there's not a company or client that we engage that, that we, that that's not where we begin, which is if we teach ourselves people this and the leaders aren't engaged or they're not there, or we don't teach them how to coach, then there's a certain amount of what we teach that's going to just disappear into, you know, into nowhere because the leaders weren't there. And so it's one of the reasons as a training organization, because we are focused on outcome. We want, we want measurable outcomes from the training that we deliver. Now, some of it is measurable. Some of it isn't measurable mm -hmm. in some ways just because of the nature of training. But I was on a, on a call this morning uh, with one of my clients in Hong Kong, and we were walking through the metrics that matter. We were walking through, you know, we have, you know, five different groups of leaders that we're running through, 10 different set of metrics. We're training the leaders, we're training the salespeople, and we've been working with them for three years and we've moved the needle greatly. Mm -hmm. And we see a lot of our company, our customers where we're doubling sales are tripling sales, companies are growing because of what we're teaching. And there's two things that, that drive that. One, the training is not an event. So when, when we're working with clients, in our vernacular at Sales Gravy, we call it integrator partnerships, where we're integrated into their world. They've given us a certain segment of their training. So typically, we, they've, they've come to the conclusion that the, tra the, tra the way we, I say traditional because it's new, but the way sales enablement is working is sales enablement are a bunch of administrators who really don't know how to teach salespeople how to sell. <laughs> so yes. we're, you know, we're practitioners. Everybody on my team is a practitioner. So we're not like coming in and like dumping training on a sales organization at an event. We're teaching the sales organization over a long period of time. And one of those requirements is that the leaders all go through our coaching program and that the leaders are connected and that when we do training, the leaders are in the training. Like leaders don't get to go someplace else. And oh, by the way, the other rule, and this is, a, I mean, we're just, we just dictate this. We're not asking for permission. The leaders can't be in the back of the room on a laptop. And I've, right. I've had this conversation with how many vice presidents of sales that I can't even imagine how many times I've had this conversation. I'm like, they, they can't be on the back of the room on a laptop and you need to tell them. And if you don't tell them, I'm going to call them out. And I'm going to tell them to get off their laptop because they send the wrong message to the salespeople. This isn't important. So it is a, you know, it is a connect, uh, connect the dots. And the reason why there is, you know, a, a, like you use the word, a performance-driven, you know, process. Sales is performance. It is, it is a skill. It is no different than being an athlete. And it, and I believe that sales professionals are the elite athletes of the business world. I believe it at my core mm -hmm. because if you don't have salespeople, nothing else happens. So you have to train people 
You have to train them and train them and train them. And then you have to coach them and coach them and coach them. So if you just look at the, if you look at the continuum, it's really simple. You train, you observe, you coach, and you give feedback and you run that play over and over and over again. Everything else is academic. So my message to a sales leader is if you are not standing in front of your salespeople, you are not doing your job. I don't care how many reports, I don't care about the email, I don't care about anything that you're doing in your office. You are unemployed unless you're in front of your people. And by the way, the same thing for sales people. Salespeople, you are unemployed unless you are standing in front of a customer, either physically or, or you know, or, or virtually. It doesn't make right. a difference to me where it is. That's where the job is. So I think that as, you know, from, from a company standpoint, it's the, it's the managerial courage to hold their sales leaders accountable for being in front of their people, whether it's in a training or whether it's on the floor during a, in a, in a normal day. And whether those leaders, by the way, are gifted at coaching or have been trained to coach, their presence alone matters. Because when the leader is on the floor, the floor gets better. And I'll, you know, give you an example. Just uh, this is a with a group of leaders, and I've been working with this, this group for eight years now. The um, the first time I met them, it was an inside sales team, two hundred salespeople on the floor, and they had twelve leaders managing those two hundred people. So pretty wide span of control. Uh-huh. And the first time I came in, I just came in and observed. That's how I, when I, when I engage a company, I'd go there and I sit. So I got myself a chair. I sat right in the middle of the sales floor and I watched. Never saw a leader come onto the floor all day long. So the next day I got with the leaders and said, or asked the question, what were you doing all day? And they said, well, we're listening to recordings of calls. I said, really? Like, why are you listening to the recordings of calls? Well, we're listening to see what people are doing wrong so we can coach them. I said, well, when the calls that you're listening to, how, how old are those calls? Well, usually they're about two weeks old, but we're, you know, sometimes they're sooner than that. And I said, so let me guess. So you listen to the call, you write down all the things the salesperson did wrong, and then you call the salesperson in, they sit down in your, in your big cube, and then you say, listen to this call with me, and, you, and then you go through your quality control sheet, and then you tell them what they did wrong, and they tell you, oh, that was just a call that I did two weeks ago, that was a one-off, I'm not doing that anymore. And they all looked at me and, and nodded their heads. And I said, <laughs> I said, so, so you're in your office listening to calls that have happened instead of being on the floor with people who are calling right now that you could coach in the moment and make them better. And they said, well, if we go on the floor, they don't make any mistakes. And I just sat there and looked at them for a minute. And I <laughs> said, you, okay. <laughs> I said, so you want your people to do better? Yes. They all nodded their head. And when you're with them, they do better. And they went, yes, and nodded their head. And I said, so what's the answer to making them do better? And it was so hard for them to compute that if they were just there, it all got better. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened. We, the first thing we did is just move them out there and just sit on the floor. And suddenly, all the performance metrics went up. Easy. Then if you teach people how to coach and you teach them how to ask the right questions and and you teach them the same instincts to know like the patterns that a deal is going to close or that, that that you're in the right place, it's the same thing with a coach. The pattern to know that this is what I need to focus on right now versus this. And that's going to have the greatest impact. Some of that stuff that you have to learn through experience and through coaching yourself. But, but essentially... When we work with, especially with inside sales teams, when my trainers or my consultants go out and they're working with them, the very first thing they do is run everybody out of an office, get on the floor. And it's surprising how many companies that we that we do business with and, and help where part of the engagement is just having one of my folks come in and get on the floor with the salespeople and, right. the, and the sales leaders and just like get get that habit back, you know, back 
on track again because it is easy for people to drift, especially in a skill position. So, yep. so, so to answer your question, I think that, and I'm from the South, that's why this was a long answer. <laughs> I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a zero sum train leaders or train sales. Oh, I don't either. No, but I, I think it's a, I think it's a connect the dots. And I also think that there's a lot of really, really, really bad sales training out there and it bores people to death and it's not practical. Uh, it's pie in the sky and it's training built by, like I met an HR manager on a plane who was building the prospecting training for the sales team. Mm. And I asked her, have you ever made an outbound prospecting call? And she goes, no, I would never do that. I'm like, okay, good luck. You know, so <laughs> I think that, you know, so I think that some, you. You know, <laughs> some of that issue is we just, it's, it's just such a big issue. Although I'm, I'm happy that there's a $20 billion market because I like to have a little bit, a little bit of piece of that. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's, you know, we see all these signs and we see the data is that certainly there are exceptions and, you know, you've got this integrated program you, you teach that, that brings all the pieces together that forces the, the managers to be there and be present and coach, which doesn't happen a lot. Right. And it's like, well, how do we, how do we change just the mindset around what the purpose of the training is uh, to help people improve? Yes. And because, you know, the number one reason is, you know, sellers leave a job is they're not getting anything of value from their managers. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you know, in our in our world, if if the company won't get the managers involved and won't put them in the in the training with us, we won't do the training. So we have a you know our you know our uh, our sample of the world is is a little bit uh, skewed because we're very careful with the companies that we want to work with because we do this because we have a passion for it and we love it and we want and we love salespeople and like you said we want them to improve we want them to make more money mm-hmm. and we want them to love their job and that's why we do this so if we're working with an organization that is unwilling to 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 do the things that are required for those things to happen we're not going to engage because we first of all we don't want our reputation muddied and we're not going to, we're not going to make an impact. And if we're not making an impact, life is just way too short to do stuff just for money. Right. All right. Well, Jeb, unfortunately we've run out of time and we've concluded our great bait and, <laughs> bait and switch episode on negotiation <laughs> for, for, for everybody who joined in thinking they're going to hear that. Well, come back next time. We have Jeb. <laughs> I promise. Cause I've got a whole interview prepared on your book. Which I, I enjoyed reading, and and we'll have to get you back soon because it's it's uh, yeah all my well, 40 we can just, questions. just just name the name the date. I'm not traveling right now, so <laughs> okay. I, I can you pretty much pick a day, and I'm sure I can show up for you. We'll, we'll do that. So, but a great conversation anyway. And so, in case people aren't familiar with you, how can they connect with you and find out more about what you do? Uh, the the best way of getting in touch with me or to ch- to check me out is go to salesgravy.com uh, or jebblunt.com. And my last name is spelled B-L-O-U-N-T, although it's pronounced blunt. Uh, you can catch me in those places. And of course, uh, my podcast is on anywhere you get podcasts. And I'm on Instagram, Twitter, uh, YouTube, LinkedIn, I don't know where else. Facebook. Well, when you tra- when you traveled, I used to follow your travels on Instagram, so that was yes. uh, always entertaining. So, all right. Well, Jeb, great to talk to you, and yeah, we will do this again very shortly. Sounds good. Thanks, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this show, and I want to thank my guest, Jeb Blunt, for sharing his wisdom with us today. That was a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. 
And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, we'd really appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with us today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.